And now, God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts together be acceptable to you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. It was November 13th, 1789, when founding father Benjamin Franklin wrote what was probably his last great quote. A publisher, entrepreneur, and a diplomat, Franklin was well known for his sayings or proverbs, and they were often recorded in the Poor Richard's Almanac and in his newspaper, the Pennsylvania Gazette. And this quote about probably his last good quote came at a time when Franklin knew his life was near its end. So on that day, 234 years ago tomorrow, Franklin wrote a letter to the French scientist Jean-Baptiste Leroy, concerned that he had not heard from Leroy since the start of the French Revolution. And so Franklin wrote this note to him, and he inquired about Leroy's health and about the events in Paris. And then he shared a brief update about the major event in the United States, the Constitution's ratification a year earlier, and the new government formed under it. And these were the words that Franklin wrote. Our new Constitution is now established. Everything seems to promise it will be durable. But in this world, nothing is certain except death and taxes. He concluded that note, that letter, with his statement about his own mortality, writing, My health continues much as it has been for some time, except that I grow thinner and weaker so that I cannot expect to live much longer. Franklin would succumb to a combination of illnesses and pass at the age of 84 there in Pennsylvania, five months after having written that letter, confirming what he said, that death is certain. Now, while the quote about death and taxes came before Franklin, he is most well known for it and attributed to it, because it was made public in his writings in 1817 and has become part of American pop culture. I want to be frank with you this morning. We're all going to die. As one pastor states, the mortality rate for human beings nears 100%. It's pretty much a sure thing. As Franklin said, death and taxes are certain. Everything else might be up for grabs. Last Sunday, it was All Saints Day, and we remembered with churches all around the world, those who have passed from this fellowship in the past year. We read their names. We paused to remember and to be grateful for them. And perhaps some of you were like me. When you heard those names read, you had different thoughts, one of gratitude for those dear saints. But maybe you also thought like me, what names will we read next year? Or maybe you thought, when will my name be read among the list of saints who have gone on? Death raises all kinds of questions, tough questions. What about those who have died? What about that awaits us when we die? Losing a loved one is probably one of life's most difficult experiences. Now, unless we die young ourselves, we eventually experience what it's like to lose someone to death. As one person put it, we understand death only after it has laid its hands on someone we love. 
Death is like this abstract theory until it touches someone that we love. And that's when we first begin to understand the pain of separation, the dreadful finality of it all, the terrible fact that this person that we love, this person that we still love deeply, will not come back. That is the tragedy of death. And in the aftermath of death of someone we love, we wonder what has happened to them. Are they okay? Will I ever see them again? And these are some of the same questions that the people were asking at the church in Thessalonica as they faced the death of their loved ones. Asking, what about those who have died before us, before Jesus came back? Why does death still have this sting when we know you have told us, Paul, that Christ has victory over death? In our text, this section from the oldest part of the New Testament, Paul, one of the writers, addresses this community of believers that is struggling with the loss of loved ones. And he provides profound insight on what it means to navigate all the waters of grief with hope. You see, Paul and many in the early church truly believed that Jesus was coming back in their lifetime. They thought they would not die. Jesus would return before that happened. But as the years went on and the saints began to die and funerals were happening, they became concerned and began to panic. You see, the culture around them, the Greek culture, taught that when you died, you were separated from the living permanently. Not as a punishment, but that is just how it was to be. And so with all that culture in their head and the fact that Jesus had not returned yet, they began to wonder, will those who have died before Jesus comes back be with us again? Will there be a victory over death? Will we die before Jesus comes back to again and what will happen to us they began to question is is this all a hoax was paul even right about the gospel did jesus proclaim and actually conquer death for all so you can imagine how gut-wrenching it was to have these questions and to be experienced in this and wonder is it true paul is it true what you've told us so they sent word to paul and he includes in this letter as much reassurance as he can muster And Paul wrote this section of scripture with a pastoral heart, one that cares about these believers, wants to address their fears, to bring them hope, and to encourage them with the truth that they nor the saints who have gone before them will ever be separated. Ever. And this is what he writes in verse 13. But we, friends, do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about those who have died, so that you may not grieve as others who do have no hope. Nancy's son, Tripp, suffered from cystic fibrosis. And as Tripp lay in the hospital in his final days, Nancy asked him if she could read him some scripture to comfort him. She wasn't sure exactly what to read to him, and he could sense that. So he told his mom to turn to page 1649. You see, 16 and 49 were his favorite numbers because he was a big fan of Joe Montana and the 49ers. And so she opened the Bible and she looked and there was no page 1649. It stopped at 1334. 
And just as she was about to tell him that he needed to try again, she did some quick math and realized, well, the New Testament starts over again at page 1. And so 315 in the New Testament would be page 1649. And so she went to that page and she read these words from the Apostle Paul to the Thessalonian church. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about those who have died, so that you may not grieve as others who do not have no hope, who do have no hope. Tripp turned to his mother, his CO2 levels rising, his lungs failing, and he said, Mommy, those are the sweetest words. You know, I've heard people criticize Christians who grieve when a believer dies, fellow Christians. Their logic is that we know where they've gone and who they're with, so why would we grieve? But their logic is one more example of the weaknesses of dichotomies and opposites, that it must be either or. It doesn't have to be hope or grief. It can be both. It should be both. Paul did not believe we should not grieve. Faith does not exempt us from grief. Grief is evidence of love. We hold the reality of human loss and the hope of eternal life together in both hands. Grieving with hope will always mean that we acknowledge our loss and the pain of others and their loss, while also trusting that there is a larger story at play, and God will end and win in that ending. We grieve, but we grieve with hope. But how is that possible? How do you lose someone precious to you, your very heartbeat, and yet still grieve with hope? Paul answers that question in verse 14, saying, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus God will bring with him those who have died. See, our hope is built around the resurrection of Jesus Christ, upon the promise of Jesus himself that he gave to his disciples in the hours before he knew he would die to comfort and to encourage them and to us when he said, Because I live, you also will live. This is our bedrock belief, Christians. There is an ancient confession of the church that we need to revive, and it is this. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Paul comforts the believers, saying that those who died before Christ's return will not be left out or pushed aside by those who are still living, but that the dead in Christ will rise first. And he goes on to describe this to encourage people, saying, For this we declare to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will by no means precede those who have died. For the Lord himself with a cry of command, with the archangel's call, and with the sound of God's trumpet, will descend from heaven, and the dead in Christ will rise first. If we are in Christ, whether on earth or with the Lord, we are still in Christ. Paul, with such a pastor's heart, wants the believers to remember that Christ is King and Lord over all, both now and in his return. 
And so when Paul describes Christ's arrival, or what some translations call the second coming, Paul employs words and actions and images that first century Christians are familiar with when a ruler or king or emperor come to a town to see its subjects. Trumpets would blow, and there would be military shout to muster the troops up at hand to come to attention. And Paul says believers will be caught up in the air, the symbolic way of saying that Jesus is Lord of all beneath him. These are words from a pastor, words of comfort. See, Paul's intent here was to soothe anxieties, to clarify some confusion, and to give the believers hope. Over time, Paul's words in these verses have taken a life of their own fueling speculation and theories, as well as divisions and arguments about end-time events. These arguments seem unlikely to be resolved until, well, until Jesus comes back. Perhaps some of these theories should simply just be left behind. The truth is that God is the only one who knows when the world will end and what exactly it will look like. In one of his classes, uh, seminary professor Andrew Banstra had just completed this rigorous and thorough defense of the Reformed position on amillennialism, the the denial, basically, of most timelines of end-time events. And the class finished, and the students were packing up their bags and notebooks, and before they headed out, he said, you know what, then again, then again, If the Lord Jesus returns and you meet him in the air, and he starts talking about setting up a 1,000-year-old kingdom headquartered in Jerusalem, well, just go with it. Because you see, in truth, none of us can fully envision what the end will be like. But if it's Jesus, and if we are with him, neither do we or will we have a blessed thing to worry about. You see, Paul didn't write these words to create speculation and arguing among us about the end times. Instead, Paul wrote these words, and John wrote his revelation, given to them to give us comfort and to encourage us. Where is the safest place in the universe? It's in Christ, in God's loving embrace. Who wins in the end? God wins. Paul concludes his letter with this. Encourage one another with these words. Do not be people of fear or confusion, he says. Encouragement in the face of death is what we all need, and the gospel gives it to us. Once we are in Christ, we will never die. Our bodies may give out. The people who know us may come and go. But we never cease to be. We can't. We are in Christ. He remembers us. He has a future for us. And Paul says, encourage one another with these words and do it often. Death is not the end for those in Christ. We grieve, but we do not grieve without hope. Why? Because Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. Let's say that together. Christ has died, Christ is risen, 
Christ will come again. Another time. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Let us pray. Almighty and gracious God, we confess like those early believers that death can sometimes steal our confidence in your promises. The pain, the fear, and the separation can seem like a canyon far too wide and too deep for you to cross. And yet we proclaim and hope today, and we are convinced that nothing, not death, nor life, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in all of creation can separate us from your love through Christ Jesus. We praise you, God, for your victory over sin and death. You raised Jesus from the grave and crowned him Lord of all. And we thank you for this assurance today. Help us, O oh God, to rely with confident expectation on your promises and to encourage one another as we live our lives grounded in the truth that Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. Amen.